from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News. Today, we are covering Monzo's new investment feature allows you invest as little as one pound. India hits its financial inclusion target 41 years ahead of the target. And was the metaverse worth the hype as banks start to abandon it? Joining me tonight, we have some super duper fantastic guests. First up, we have my colleague and co-host for the evening, Ross Gallagher. Welcome to the stage, Ross. How's it going, mate? What are you doing? Oh boy, what is this? And uh, it's always a bit weird, isn't it? This is incredible. Just like pretend nobody's there, and then it's just a conversation between us, right? And so then... I think this is my third recording in the last week. The only person that was in the room for the other two was my dog, so this hits a little different. Yeah. Did you bring them along today? Just to... Oh, sadly not. Although if he was here, you'd all know about it because yeah. he'd be. Do you know what? I, I recorded one yesterday, bizarrely, about like the creator economy, and somebody had a puppy on their shoulder like the whole time which was the most cute thing and the most distracting thing that i've ever seen in my entire life but uh, it didn't make a peep welcome to me on every zoom call yeah which is weird but uh uh, and how's your how's your day you had a busy week uh superb busy week hectic week i think i always say to you that's the way we like it um but i mean this just is the the icing on the cake uh last time you did after dark was like pre-pandemic wasn't it we've had a whole global pandemic since i last sat on one of these stages it was great to be back i i'm i'm not sure the producers were drawing like a correlation that you caused that because of your appearance in after dark but if there's some sort of breakout tomorrow then this guy's to blame i'm afraid so uh, let's hope for the best i don't need that on my conscience (laughs) (laughs) right on that note we better bring uh, bring the rest of the guests on so next up we have veronica glab who is the head of engagement over at innovate finance Give her a round of applause. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm good. I'm good. I have to be honest, I'm a little bit jet lagged because uh, I just got back from New York where we were launching our, soft launching our New York office. And now we're gearing up for another big event at Innovate Finance, our FinTech for Good Summit. Very cool. So it's been busy. Very cool. People have just gone off you really quickly. You're like uh, showboating of going to New York. Like, I'm yeah. tired because I've got kids. It's never back mind, to, uh, it's back never to mind school to... mode. It's a big Hermione energy on the side. <laughs> You'll win them back. You'll win them back. Don't worry about it. So uh, uh, for anybody who doesn't know about Innovate Finance, uh, what's, the, what's the elevator pitch? Yeah, sure. So very quickly, we're the membership and advocacy group for fintech coming in and out of the UK based here in London, uh, building our New York office and partnering with other organizations in major fintech hubs around the world. Very, very cool. That's a hell of a, that's a, hell of a card that you have to have <laughs> with that job title in that sense. But, uh, that's why but, I've got to be engaging. Exactly, that's good, yeah. All right, uh, completing our lineup tonight, please welcome to the stage Sarah Castellano, who is the co-head of payments and commerce solutions for Amir for JP Morgan. Give her a round of applause. <laughs> I nearly, I nearly ran out of air saying your job title then. Like, uh, that's, uh, I work at a bank. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so for anybody who doesn't know JP Morgan, then uh, uh, get, tell us a little bit more about your role, Sarah. So I am in JP Morgan Payments. We are the leaders in moving money. We move $9 trillion a day around the world. Wow. And my responsibility is I co-head everything that moves money across Europe, Middle East, and Africa from... Checks, cash, coin, to merchant acquiring. We're the largest online acquirer in Europe to how we look at domestic payments across places like Saudi Arabia and 
money in and out of Russia still. Very cool. I mean, it, it seems like there's almost a, like a, uh, is it like a risk that there's so many JP Morgan Chase people here? Like, is it, do we need to inform the, like, give it, give it a round of applause because there's a lot of you here. Like, yeah. I, we should have informed the risk department potentially yeah, at that stage. But, yeah. uh, but anyway, thank you for coming along, Sarah. No, thank you for having me. All right. Well, we better get into it and uh, feel free, audience, to get into it wherever you want to. Uh, there aren't any mics in the, in the crowd, so if you start shouting or have a comment, then it's going to be weird, just going to say. But uh, feel free to see what happens. Um, right. We better get into the news here, live at the Village Underground here in London. All right, uh, so the very first story that we had was covered in a bunch of different places. Uh, the place that we picked up was CNBC. This is Britain's 4.5 billion digital bank, Monzo, debuts investor features. So uh, British digital uh, bank, Monzo, launched a feature that lets users invest as little as one pound. The feature uh, called Investments, sort of says what it is really, uh, will allow Monzo customers to invest in a number of funds managed by BlackRock. Uh, this product will put Monzo into the competition with Chase, uh, sorry about that, uh, which offers online investment management through its Nutmeg subsidiary, asset management firms, and various other things that, uh, competitors that are out there as well. Uh, YouGov research commissioned by Monzo revealed 69% of the UK population aren't really sure where to go for simple to use investing product. I guess you would say that if you've just built a product that does that to a certain degree. But, and that 60% of adults say they'd be inclined to invest if the minimum investment amount was actually lower. Um, I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? What do you think, Ross? Is this a, I mean, is this a weird one for Monzo to go to? I mean, they're this sort of famed, you know, pocket money for adults type thing in terms of that shiny card. Is, is investments a next place for them to go? I think it is. I, I know you said that it puts them in competition with Chase. And look, it does. It puts them in direct competition with Chase. But I think I'd be more worried if I was a wealth simple or a wealthify of the world. I think something like investments, and I think you said at the end that this is possibly particularly attractive if you're a little bit unsure about investments, being able to do it directly in the Monzo environment, in the Monzo app, being able to see it, Probably a little bit more accessible than um, signing up for a Lansdowne, uh, a Hargreaves Lansdowne account or a BlackRock account, which may seem a little bit intimidating. So I can see, um, I can see the move. I think there was a quote or, or a percentage, David, in what you said about the people that it was like 24% of people who invest feel like they're winging it. I think they're the, they're only the people that know that they're winging it. I'd argue there's at least another similar percentage that think they know what they're doing, but probably don't. And so I think. Monzo pairing it with um, which they've done a really um, a really good and intuitive education piece inside of the app as well. I think is really important. But is um, I mean, yeah, only twenty four percent are admitting they're winging it. Everybody else is getting advice from TikTok, right? Um, but but um, you know what what is actually happening? I mean, is financial education the problem? Because you know we we sort of uh, the internet exists and there's loads of content out there, and you know, do we think actually not having a you know, 
somebody to tell you what to do is what, what do you think is a uh, is financial education the answer to in the investment i mean that's a hell of a question isn't it yeah it's a big question but i i think that's the thing um you know the internet certainly has democratized the way that we access information because it's made things free and open and available but that doesn't mean it's you need, accessible you need to tell elon that like uh Ooh. that ain't free twitter ain't free whatever it's called now is definitely not free but the uh, artist formerly known as twitter yeah um <laughs> Yeah, but that's the thing, right, is the internet is so vast, right? So it's not curated for you. And if you don't know what you're looking for, if you do not have that basic level of education, and that's not just the TikTok generation, which, um, you know, that's also the the aging population, um, those who are not, you know, uh, digitally literate, um, but also, you know, certain, like, vulnerable demographics, the underprivileged as well, who have not had uh, the same education that you might have had on how to do a Google search. Yeah. Um, so it, because the internet's not curated, it's it's different. And, and there has to be more of that grassroots effort to upskill those who aren't so financially literate. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's, this has sort of come out the same week. I was reading, me and Jason were talking about it in the, uh, the, the office earlier on that. I think Monzo's put out as the, uh, is it the number one downloaded app? financial services app since 2017 or something, which is, I, I probably just, somebody's going to definitely DM me and be like, you just made that statistic up. And in fact, producer Laura is rolling her eyes at me immediately. You're, but, you're not uh, actively getting heckled. Yes. So, think, uh, so um, but, but it's an interesting one that actually they've taken this point of within their, their journey, you know, I, I guess to, to sort of put it to a test, um, give us a round of applause audience uh, if you have a Monzo account. Okay. And and do it again if you would be keen to try out the investing thing as like a serious investing thing, not like a, I put in a pound and that was interesting, but like uh, keep clapping. So clap if you would invest with them. And, and, and David, maybe the like as a first step in getting people comfortable with more complex financial products like investments. Maybe it's okay to not be serious about it straight from the off and just to dip a toe and actually get comfortable and then sort of build from there. Yeah, but it's um, but it's an interesting sort of, you know, the beachheads being, and we've seen this, I guess, with, you know, Revolut's beachhead being travel and, you know, Monzo's being discretionary spend and, uh, you know, different players. Actually, they've got to get to doing like the serious stuff else. I mean, it's going to be very difficult to make it a, a sort of sustainable business. But well, what do you think, Sarah? I mean, it's a... This is sort of fintech growing up, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And for the record, I think that competition is great because competition essentially drives innovation and it continues to increase the bar. And I think that companies like Monzo getting into investments actually makes investments available for all. And I think that that's an extremely important thing. But to your point, I also think that sometimes there's a balance here between um, educating customers around the risk of the principal getting lost. And I think today we're in a very high interest rate environment, so your investments have to make more than the interest rates that you can earn on your savings account. So it is a risk versus reward, and I'm not sure that TikTok is telling you that. They're saying you can make a lot of money, and we saw, obviously, Bitcoin billionaires become a real thing. So you do have a lot of misinformation out there. So I do think that there is education is, is critical, and also, you can't make it too easy, to your point, around what are they doing, because a lot of people don't read. And when it's an in-app, I can click three times and I get an investment account that's amazing, uh, but you don't know the risks associated to it. And I, I fear sometimes 
that there are stats like how many new accounts are opened, how many times you download an app, rather than really thinking about who are the customers, how am I educating them, how am I doing surveys to make sure they really understand the product that they're buying from me. Yeah, I mean, and that's the challenge, isn't it? I mean, if you... Um you know, you believe every taxi driver in London, then actually crypto is still the place to uh, make your millions in that sense. But it's uh, not, again, anything we say here is not financial advice, anybody, just so you're, uh, we didn't put that caveat out earlier on Laura. But, uh, but, but, but some of social media is like taxi drivers at scale. Yeah. And, and kind of what I mean by that is, if you think back to when we, you know, we saw um, Credit Suisse recently get into a whole heap of trouble, um, SVB, Signature Bank, and there was an awful lot of commentators on platforms like X um, that were spreading hysteria before they collapsed and may or may not have contributed to the collapse. We don't know their motivations. Have they shorted the stock? We don't know. Um, and I think absolutely there are risks with getting your financial information, financial advice from social media. It's not regulated. It's not necessarily a safe space. You've got Michael Owen on there advertising NFTs that can't lose their value. Um, sorry, sorry, Michael Owen? Yeah. Did he? Totally. Did absolutely. He? And he's just one example. I mean, but, after after all those knee injuries, he needed to do something different, didn't he, really? Like, and uh, what's, a, what's a sports person expected to do, right? Right, exactly. And literally, he's just one high-profile example. He's the first one that came to mind. Um, I mean, equally, I bought digital assets because Ja Rule told me to. Like, yeah. that, was, uh, that was where I went, you know? Yeah. After sure. that fire festival, I was like, whatever that guy does next is like a so big thing. True. Ja Rule... Um, Firefast was an absolute hit. Um, what I, but what I would say is um, there, there, there is something that we can learn from how people engage with and interact with that type of content, particularly on platforms like um, TikTok, and it's probably something to do with meeting people where they are, um, the format that it gets delivered mm -hmm. in, um, but being able to do that, I think, in a, in a, in a safe and regulated way. I mean, ultimately, financial services should be a community thing, shouldn't it, really? I mean, and that's what, when it was working at its peak, I'd say, from a distribution perspective, it was a community thing, really. But I guess the challenge is, is nobody likes to admit things that they don't know. Therefore, social's actually really good. Well, nobody admits they don't know anything on social media, do they? Everybody professes they know everything. Uh, please subscribe to my newsletter. No, I don't really. I'm joking. Um, but um, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? How do you bring that social element, that community element, that, you know, is this normal? Does that look normal? Is this, you know, am I saving enough? Am I doing enough? Like, and that's, a, that's an interesting sort of financial system, isn't it? Yeah, one of the, one of the features that I really like um, about Monzo Investments, and actually, so I'm on the wait list. I don't know if we've got anybody in that could bump me up, but it feels like the right kind of crowd. Um, but one thing I really do like is they actually allow you to access all of the educational content before you get, like while you're on the wait list, before you get access to the actual feature. Like a, like a license. Like yeah, you've well, got a... It's kind of like... Um, learn before you buy. Like completely. I like that. Yeah. And there's things, you know, you need to be set up financially in a certain way before you really consider it. Sarah, I think that's your point, before you consider investing. So having all of that context up front and you can make an informed decision about, is this the right product for me at this time? Useful, right? Mm. And I think also to the community point and the information, I always get concerned that when there's low costs, low fees, are you trying to buy subscribers? And this is investing and 
what you don't want is a scenario where the fees then are hidden or they go up because investing is expensive and reading the small print is really important. So it's a balance between making it simple for people to understand but also completely transparent. And I, I do, I, I, I looked at all of that and there are some points in there where is this a sustainable model on a go forward basis? Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, looking at where they're going next as well, I mean, based on, you know, what they're putting out and based on, you know, the roadmap they're sort of showing, like pensions are next as well. So it's like, you know, fintech's getting into the, it's getting into the boring sort of big things, isn't it? You know, and that's, that's sort of important, isn't it? Because it starts to change all of it, really. But um, we better move on, though, because there's a lot more things that have happened than just, uh, like we always sort of say we should have a jingle of like Monzo did a thing, right? But uh, Monzo did a thing. Let's move on. All right. Uh, so the next story uh, was a sort of an interesting one and interesting in sort of a diff few different sort of types of ways because it's a it's sort of a feel good good story but you sort of have to dig into it which is and this was covered in fin global and a bunch of other different places india hits its financial inclusion goal 41 years early like that's just a, just a cool 41 years as a headline that's impressive isn't it you know what i mean like actually that's as somebody who did their homework very much last thing every time when I had it, 41 years in advance is pretty impressive, isn't it? So, uh, so India has achieved its financial inclusion target 41 years ahead of the original projection, reaching an 80% inclusion rate in just six years. The significant milestone was revealed in a report by the G20 Global Partnership for Financial Inclusion, released before the upcoming G20 summit. Uh, summit in New Delhi. Uh, digital payments were highlighted as the primary driver for the accelerated progress. The report specifically mentioned the JAM Trinity, uh, a combination of Jan Dan bank accounts, uh, identity systems, and mobile phones as a pivotal fast track for uh, financial inclusion within India. I, I mean, this is a like a genuinely amazing feat, isn't it? But the bit I don't really sort of understand is like, how has this happened? Like, actually. How have they managed it? I know obviously there's a huge amount of activity that has happened with things like the, the India stack and the technology underpinning this and the, the identity capability that's been deployed. But how have they managed to create bank accounts that are sustainable in an environment where big incumbent organizations really struggle with that? I mean, Ross, it's pretty think, impressive, right? Oh, spectacular. Absolutely spectacular. I think this is one that I'm just... So excited about. So they released some statistics um, quite recently, in fact, around the volume of real-time digital payments broken out by country. And unsurprisingly, based on what we've just talked about, India was number one. But it wasn't just number one. It was number one, and then the volume was bigger than the next four combined. Um, it's just testament, I think, to, like, build it and they will come. Like... The UPI, like you said, that India stack, the infrastructure is incredible. It's fostered um, innovation at the upper layer and people have started to build on it, build really innovative, diverse propositions. The uptake's been incredible. People have engaged with it. People have responded. I think one thing that's definitely worth a call out, though, that you covered off in your notes is the point around um, the single universal ID. I think that's absolutely key. You need to be able to you know, validate that people are who they're saying that they are. And it's probably no coincidence that where we're seeing some real um, competition to this similar innovation is the Nordics, where they also have a single universal ID. But 
awesome, incredible achievement. I don't know how many people have been to India post-COVID, but it's impressive to me that the, they could buy a water from a woman on the street and she has a QR code. If I was trying to buy a water on the street at a big gig, you have to sometimes fumble around for cash. So it's an absolutely impressive thing they've done. But equally, they're able to leapfrog because they had such a high cash-driven culture. So it's like, and I compare it to companies that are able to build right directly on cloud native uh, technology versus companies that are sitting on mainframes and have to upgrade and, and get there. It's a big, big step for them. Where in India, it's absolutely nascent technology they were able to build on and it was government backed. And all the politicians were always aligned on this is the future. And I think that's been really great. And it solves the, all the problems in one because they've also learned from places like here in the UK, the first UK faster payments, we were the first faster payments network in the world. How can you learn from all these that have come up and build it with the digital ID in it so then you don't have the APP scams? How do you build it all into QR systems so that you really get that inclusion where it is quite difficult if not everybody um, has the ability to make a living in a digital way. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, the, the, as you say, the rollout, because, yeah, I mean, yeah, we've done a lot here, but we, we're still phasing out checks, you know I mean? Like, and, and everybody's like, we exposed an open banking API. And it's like, yeah, it took like four years. Like, so actually they made this happen so quickly in that period of time. Like, it, it's sort of, sort of that, um, uh, necessity in that innovation that seems to have made it stick, right? I was going to say, I think that's also the, the balance that you find. You're going to have a, in fintech adoption of any kind, you're going to have markets around the world that are very much consumer driven, mm. and you're going to have markets that are purely government driven and then a whole spectrum in between. And I, I think this underpins how important that government collaboration, cooperation, and also the drive was there, which makes it a success story, I think also, and also a bit of a put pressure on other highly complex regulatory environments where, you know, there are opportunities to develop similar financial inclusion programs or even just roll out a better regulatory landscape with that government participation. Um, but I think in India, it was absolutely key there to be government driven in many ways. Yeah, I mean, uh, demonetization was a big part of that as well, wasn't it? You know, I mean, it's like you start taking physical money out of the, the out of circulation. People sort of have to use digital payments in a, in a major way, right? Well, I, I think that's key and actually maybe underpins a lot of the success. Um, I think there was enough of a financial upside um, for the government to invest in digital payments and digital payments technology to move everything that was happening in cash in that sort of shadow economy um, sort of bring that online in a way. I think there's a question over how the model continues because ultimately, is it sustainable if the government is continuing to foot the bill? Um, sorry, sorry. Yeah, but I think on the government side, you have to do that because your job is to control the currency. And if you look at what happened with M-Pesa, yes, M-Pesa is amazing as a payment method in Kenya, but it went all the transactions went outside of the banking ecosystem. So the governor of the currency no longer has control of inflation or anything in their country. So it's in their interest. And I think what, what UPI is doing is they're also following their citizens where they go. And we all know if anyone has ever dealt with Indian rupee, it doesn't move cross-border. So it's a very difficult currency to move. And... The remittance market is huge. So if they create this, 
this wallet and have it in the UK and you can remit rupee back home. It's following its users and it then becomes even more successful. Yeah, and, and, and we're already seeing it in India, right? I mean, a lot of the um, those real-time digital payments are getting processed through things like Paytm, right? So it's not even the... Uh, it's not even the traditional banks. I think what's interesting as well is we're talking about cashless targets and they've hit 80%. And maybe that first 80% is the easier bit to hit. I think as they start to the target thing, yeah, that goes beyond 80%, I think you hit slightly different challenges. It becomes harder because actually cash is a legitimate way for people to access the financial system. And for whatever reason, not everybody is going to be able to access digital payments, right? So, I mean, there's up until... Quite recently, it's been a significant percentage of the population in India that have made major purchases, including cars and homes with cash. And I think maybe that could be one way to ensure that customer loyalty, if you will, is when you attach such major purchases that will also help people to build credit history mm. and you you create that incentivize, yeah. uh, you incentivize them basically to keep using that banking system as well um, because it you know allows for a track record being kept. It also keeps their money safe, especially when they make, you know, those milestone purchases like a car for the family, like a home. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see and whether they've truly made it, uh, you know, I mean, for financial inclusion, you know, bottom of the pyramid, you know, there's a lot said sort of World Bank, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but it always, it always almost becomes a uh, sort of a TCF thing for West, whereas actually this is about, this isn't about like the, the 10%, it's about, you know, a much broader population, because actually, you know, including people by just having a bank account doesn't, it doesn't feel like the end state, does it? That feels like the, for all of the things we were talking about around education before, I mean, this feels like the, almost the beginning of that journey in terms of really what including people in the financial system really thinks like, God, it got serious then, didn't it? Uh, we should do some jokes now. Uh, so I think that Oh, I we thought you were going to have a joke, Sarah. Uh, It's kind of a joke. It's okay, cool. So as I'm... If you build it, they will come. Okay. And if you're Ted Lasso and you put a believe on yeah. the exit door, then you can really get yourself to an instant payments network that is completely able to hit the whole population. 100%. And I'm a always love a big Ted fan Lasso. of but a Ted Lasso But the believe sign reference. has to be yeah. crooked. Exactly. Yes. But if, if you believe... Go Greyhounds. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, we better wrap up the first half of the show. Commercial banking is changing faster than many banks can keep pace with. The innovation that's been unleashed by digital technologies and fintechs has transformed what commercial banking looks like today. In our brand new report, in association with Infosys Finical, we explore the new generation of commercial banking, how value chains are being transformed, and what banks need to do to thrive in this new ecosystem. A must-read report for anyone in commercial banking, we combine our insights with those of 14 thought leaders from across financial services to break down the current situation, the catalysts of change, and what impact it will have on the industry. Don't miss out. Download your copy today at 11fs.com forward slash commercial banking. All right, back to the news. Uh, this is a story, uh, and actually a nice one sort of following on from the first half of the show, actually. Um, uh, in the world where everybody else is really getting their shit together when it comes to digital payments, this is picked up by the FT and a bunch of other places. UK cash use actually grows for the first time in a decade. Ugh. Just when we thought we were doing well, and then... 
And then they're like, we're coppering up at the tail so, again, aren't we? You know? when, I, when I talked about those uh, top five countries in the real-time digital payments, the UK was not in there. Yeah, we're dropping, we're dropping out of everything, aren't we? It's like Eurovision and now this, you know, like... Uh, anyway, uh, in 2022, cash payments rose 7% year-on-year to $6.4 billion, uh, even among 16 to 24-year-olds. Now, I can understand that a little bit, because, like, tuck money or something, but, like... Maybe not 24-year-olds at tuck money. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Like 8 to 12, maybe. That would make sense, wouldn't it? But uh, 15% of payments in the 16 to 24-year-olds was made with cash, which is amazing. Uh, The data published by UK Finance is thought to reflect a post-pandemic rebound in spending. However, economic uncertainty and the cost of living crisis are forcing people to manage their finances a little bit more carefully. Despite the numeric growth and a proportion of total payments, I don't know how I get through most of this after we've had a couple of drinks, quite frankly. Like... uh, it's, it's a skill, really, at this stage. It's like almost subconscious, really. But, uh, um, but the, the cost of living crisis is forcing people to, to think about it differently. Uh, and actually, cash fell uh, another 1% in 2022, representing just 14% of the entirety of the pie when it comes to, uh, to, to, to payments on a, on a day-to-day basis. I mean, it, do you, what do you think, Sarah? Is, this a, is it that post-pandemic sort of rebound? Is it well, we couldn't get out of our houses and spend our, you know, lovely real money. So, but now we can, we can do that. Originally, that's how I thought about it because I was thinking about all those elderly population that weren't comfortable going out. But then when I saw the stat around the age group, I really thought, I really had to think about it as this is more around, it's easier to manage cash in a financial kind of downturn, especially if you have to come to a bar, we've made transactions so easy that you could tap away on your credit card all night long and not then have money to pay your rent. So it is a kind of forced way for people to manage their spending, knowing they go out with 20 quid, they then can still pay their rent next month. So I do see that. And then the other part that I really reflected on is, is fraud. I think that fraud and fraudsters are absolutely in the ecosystem. And if people have had their identity stolen or their credit card stolen, then they'll think twice about what they're doing. And cash is always safe. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird one, isn't it? That's like fraudsters are probably being more successful now that the post-pandemic, which is kind of bizarre, isn't it? Just to be clear, uh, nobody has to make any payments at the bar. The, the beer is free tonight. So uh, feel free to for help yourself in that one. But uh, I mean, I guess just as a, a show of hands again, there's lots of interaction in this, isn't there? Like, uh, I'm not sure if you were prepared for it. Um, the, as a quick show of hands, I mean, who was paid for anything with cash like today? Stick your hands up if you have. Not many people. Okay, so what about in like the last week? Okay, a few more people last month. Okay, so there's a few people who were just like, I'm just spending crypto. Like, that's all I'm doing. Like, I live in Shoreditch. I'm just buying. There's one person who saying that they only spend crypto? Look. Oh, okay, it's, it's Maurizio from 11FS. That actually makes a great deal of sense, actually, given given Maurizio, really. So uh, he's, uh, he's, not a, uh, he's not a name, more just a, a, a sense at this stage. But uh, um, So, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? With that, I know we're, we sort of live in a little bit of a shortage bubble, right? But um, I mean, the payments system and actually what people are using and where people are using it, I mean, I, I just thought everybody was using contactless or Apple Pay or whatever these days. But 
well, that's not the case. Well, that's what I thought. But, uh, you know, the statistics have also said that um, footfall in brick and mortar businesses has fallen. So if that is falling, you know, then you, so know, what are they you would doing? think that Just... e-commerce was rising, that yeah. digital payments are going, right? If, if the same amount of money is being spent. But Where are they putting the money they... then? Online transactions? Are they just well, throwing it at the keyboard? or what? Yeah, well, so, so that's what, you know, I think that you know, the, the cash usage stat has to be stacked against other statistics about what businesses uh, people are participating in. Um, or, you know, and this is sort of my, like, almost little soapbox theory is, you know, when, if people are strapped for cash, are you potentially rooting around in your home to see if you've got a few bills left? Um, you know, as I, that would make sense to me as well. And I don't know how much money that could account for. But, you know, the, the UK having been for the last few years, the number one, like most cashless society in, in Europe, if not the world, um, you know, people stopped using a lot of their currency that they had lying around. And you had actually billions of pounds in, not in circulation out of the market. So perhaps, this is my crackpot theory, but maybe it's not that crackpot that people are actually using petty cash that they've kept in their home um, to spend their, you know, manage their spend a little bit better. See, I, 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 won't, I wonder if people are worrying like the, you know, like it's got a set, like, They've all got the queen on, right? And you know, yeah. God rest her soul, like she ain't here anymore, right? So are they? Are, they, are people worried like it's going to go out of date or something? Like uh, you know, I mean, those new know, ones but... with the king on it are going to be amazing. Like we want to keep those ones, but. But what's the level of credit card debt looking like? You know, um, I'm sure that a lot of people are also maxing out their, you yeah. know, their annual interest rate as well. And you know, paying with with cash is one way to also not rely on the cards that might have been a you know financial management tool for you once. But credit is also working against a lot of yeah. people as well when they're not able to pay it off. So I, I think that stat has to also be looked at much more holistically to paint a picture. But my initial inclination is to start asking some of those questions about. How, what does that mean in the in the context of a cost of living crisis? Yeah, but it's an interesting one, isn't it? That that point that was made around actually people managing their finances by withdrawing cash, and you know, almost um, you know, I, I joked about Monzo being the the sort of uh, you know the um, the pocket money account for for adults, but actually there's something in that, right? In terms of creating those constructs and creating those systems to to almost create that discretionary spend, right? Completely, it's the bit that we haven't solved for even still. Um, we have standing orders and direct debits that sort out all of our recurring payments and we don't have to think about it. And then the bit that people are still struggling with is managing that flight path down from what's left to the end of the month, right? And it's still a bit that just requires some thought, some engineering, like how do you really help people with that? That feels like a real service gap. And I think what's driving this possibly isn't tuck money, despite everything, um, but actually is probably people putting in place these manual hacks, these manual workarounds to try and solve for that problem. And I think if you take out 60, 70, 100 pounds or whatever it is for the week, two weeks, you put that in your wallet and you look in your wallet, you have a physical real reminder of how you're doing against that flight path over that time period, right? And... Um, the reality is, if you're just tapping your card or you're tapping your phone, I don't even bring my wallet out anymore, right? I do it all on my phone. Um, and is that, is that, you know, that point around friction we've sort of touched on a little bit, is that, I mean, removing your so much friction in the, in the payment space, is that, is that a good thing if you're trying to manage, you know, the days in the months, you know, and the amount of money that you've got? Sarah, have you got a view on that? So I absolutely believe that payments are more embedded and it's more than just tapping your car. It's 
getting in your Uber, not realizing you don't even have to think about what you're paying for anymore because it's all absolutely interconnected. And with the rise of EV cars and all the data inside them, everything is going to get even more embedded when it comes to transactions. But I do think that there is that level of do you make it so simple that people don't then understand what they're doing? And we saw that during it was COVID. It was great that we made COVID loans easy to get, but it was almost so easy people didn't understand that the loans they were taking out and the terms around them. So it's a balance between getting the user experience easy, not too complex, but have enough friction in it that stops people to say, oh, do I really understand what I'm, what I'm actually signing myself up for? Yeah. One, one thing, though, that I think is an important call out. So before we move on, I want to make sure that we've touched on it. The usage of cash is up in absolute numbers, but cash as a proportion of total spend and other payment methods is still down. Now, we've heard an awful lot over the years of like cash is dead, I think it was Frank Sinatra that said, like, rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Cash isn't going to weigh, if I go back to one of our previous stories, it is still a very legitimate way into financial services and the financial system. We shouldn't forget that. Um, but I just wanted to, yeah, call that out as a nuance. So we'll be starting a new podcast, then the uh, Physical Money Insider. Um, cash Insider. Uh, <laughs> you need a host. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm fine for that. Do you know what? As a, as a child, I had a quite an extensive coin collection. Not many friends with that type of hobby, I'll, I'll be honest with you. But, I don't know um, if I'm surprised or not. Yeah, not so much. Weird. Bit awkward. I mean, hands up for anyone that has a coin collection. Hey, that's a pretty good response. That's more than I was expecting. I think they're just being nice to me. I thought we should probably move on. Right, uh, so uh, it kind of brings us to the end of the show, but actually, does, as always, at the end of uh, Fintech Insider, we like to start with a bit of a and finally uh, point. Uh, and this is an interesting one because we've seen so many different organizations kind of get into that. But there's a, a, a title of a headline over on Finextra, which is, Is the Metaverse Hype Dead? Um, and it's an interesting one, right? The, the financial services firm scrambled to pursue the metaverse in the wake of Facebook's 2021 rebranding as Meta. Uh, a 2022 City report predicted that the metaverse economy could be worth 13 trillion by 2030. I, I always feel like somebody should look up the analysts who say these crazy things and be like, Steve, shut the fuck up, dude. Like, you, you keep making crazy things. Like, uh, but uh, so yet the, the concept has failed to gain traction and the UK number of banks investing in the technology such as VR and AR uh, are preparing for entering the metaverse has dropped significantly by over a third in the past year. So more than half of the UK banks were investing in technology 12 months ago compared to just 38% in 2023. And it's a, I mean, it's a pretty brave 38% who are sort of saying it now, I guess. I, I mean, I, I'd sort of say like audience, like was the metaverse, like, did we do it? Have we done it? Did we, did we complete it? Is that it? Is it, is it done? Is like the metaverse done? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a funny one, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm going to offend Maurizio, but he's at the back, so he can't hit me. But, you know, crypto had this moment. It sort of went and I feel like I'm channeling my ex-Gartner consultant, but the period of hype that these things goes, you know, like the, the idea of like everything goes through a, a, an overinflated period of expectation and then actually we get into this sad phase and then people start doing real things with it. I mean, we've seen that with blockchain, we've seen that with 
you know, now the, the metaverse. I mean, is this just the cycle that things go through to get to, like, actually doing interesting things? Or, or do you think maybe starting branches in the metaverse was a bad idea? He says knowingly. Oh, good, the metaverse. Um, I think you're exactly right. I think I think you're right. I think the hype. I, I think so too, but no, not but many I, people agree with me. I think I think the hype is dead, and I think it's good that the hype is dead. I think a lot of people jumped in. A lot of brands jumped in with both feet, and it's not just um, it's not just banks. It's you know like it's Drake and it's other artists. And I think the thing is that. And I'll probably offend Maurizio as well. And if there's any sort of like crypto and Web three heads in, ultimately for me right now, it's a distribution channel. It's not a whole lot more, right? And until we figure out what's the benefit that we're adding by doing things through the metaverse over and above the channels that are already established, then I don't really like. I, I understand why the hype has gone away, but it feels like it's in that sort of like awkward teenage phase where maybe if the spotlight moves somewhere else, like AI, which it is, um, then I think it could actually kind of reinvent itself a little bit and have that little identity crisis mm. and come out the other side and be like, what am I for? What am I good at? And yeah. what value am I adding for end users? Yeah, I mean, and, and get through, yeah, get through that sort of spotty, well, actually, what's our, what's the purpose in life? That bit, yeah. We all went through that, didn't we? So, I mean, it's interesting. We actually did a podcast in the metaverse, myself and Jason did it, like, fully in the metaverse. Like, if you haven't watched that video, it's mainly funny, I'm not going to lie, but uh, it's worth watching just for that basis. But but I, it felt weird. Like, um, I don't know if Jason's here, but I definitely preferred the real version of him versus the metaverse version of him, just because, like, he was fully animate in that sense as well, you know? So, um, but it is, a, it is a strange one. I'm not sure that sort of bringing the branch into the metaverse was maybe making the best of the opportunity. So in, in my view that we were in a pandemic, we had kind of hadn't gone to a live concert, hadn't gone to a live kind of sporting event, the metaverse comes out, people are thinking, oh, wow, I'm in the safety of my own home and I can watch Ariana Grande at a massive event. And I think we've moved on. We see that in my Taylor Swift comments. You, you she might have is, moved on. I, <laughs> yeah, she's selling out concerts around everywhere. So I think that the world has moved on a bit, but I don't think it's completely gone because if you look at kind of the the younger generation and everything that they're doing when it comes to gaming and their online interactions. I do think there's still a place for the metaverse. It's just there is always a hype for the analysts because everyone wants to sell papers and there's a sensational aspect around like blockchain is going to solve world hunger. It didn't, but it does have a place in, 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 in the landscape. Metaverse is going to take over the world. It didn't, but it does have a place in the landscape. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I feel like almost just like doing a PSA for like big banks that are listening to this, like stop listening to analysts, you know, like <laughs> just stop, stop buying magic beans. Do you know what I mean? Just get to the farm but and sell your cow. Like don't the, swap it for the magic beans. What's the problem you're solving for customers mm. that is unique? To the metaverse, right? Don't just jump into the metaverse because we are in this massive hype cycle. What's the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, but but that's where I mean your your use case there, like that that's the best one that I've heard. And actually, uh, it was pitched by Uber because there was a lady who was like, "Yeah, we're going to get into the metaverse. We're Uber," and I was like, "You know, you do like physical cars and stuff, right?" And she was like, "Yeah, but if you want the VIP experience, going to watch a 
football game or the NBA or whatever. That starts from when you get picked up from your house, right? Um, so I, I think those sort of VIP experience pieces make a great deal of sense. I just don't want to go and stand in a queue on a virtual branch like that. I just don't think that's the, that's not the VIP experience that I want to. Or, or where, even if it's like the most mahogany sort of, you know, branch experience ever, it's still not the thing I want to do. I want to watch Ariana Grande at a concert, right? So, but I mean, have you guys played around with VR very much? Have you got a, like an Oculus or anything? I mean, the, cool, the coolest thing that I saw with like any sort of VR augmented reality was the Salvador Dali exhibit, which mm. is actually here in Shoreditch. And that was, it was cool because, it, you know, there's no utility there. It's just art. It's beautiful. And it was absolutely stunning, you know. Um, and, and that's where it doesn't necessarily solve a problem. It creates something beautiful. And, and that's what I think a technology has to do. It has to either solve a problem or create something beautiful. And for me personally, you know, the, the metaverse, I think it jumped the shark a little bit when it was like, you could buy a Gucci sweater for $900 in the, in the metaverse. And I'm like, yeah, or, or I could have a social life, right? Um, sorry. Preach. But, <laughs> yeah. For, yeah. for, for or, anybody who'd know. like to listen, Maurizio will be doing a TED talk about uh, digital assets and why I should buy that basketball card in the metaverse versus actually owning it. But uh, you can't convince me I want real trainers, okay? Like, it's just not going to work. So It's really hard to convince people that you're cool. Like, when you're like, I'm really cool in the metaverse. Yeah. Like, but, yeah. It, but, but I think, <laughs> ha, have we seen a bit of a reset on, I mean, because all of the valuations of those things have, have changed and because the, uh, you know, the market has, has changed quite dramatically in terms of people's acceptance or otherwise of them. You know, there is, and again, I, I feel like I'm channeling my, um, my sort of Gartner exorcism here in that sense, but there will be a period where this will come back and real things will happen with it. And, you know, it isn't going to be the, the sort of trivial things we've talked about. It will be really impactful things. And that's going to be, that's going to be great, but I wish we'd just get on with that bit, really. That's the thing. I think it will be niche and it will be impactful, but it will be very, very specific case studies. Um, and that's when potentially we'll be blown away by it. But, but it will add value. And I think that's like, that to me was a mic drop moment, like solve a problem or create something beautiful. Yeah. Uh, right. On that note, we're probably going to have to wrap up the show. So thank you so much to the guests today. Uh, a massive round of applause for all of the panelists, please. All right, folks. Uh, where can people learn a little bit more about you and the company that you represent? Sarah, starting with you. So Sarah Castellano at LinkedIn and jpmorgan.com backslash payments. You can learn all about what we're doing in the payment space. Very, very cool. Veronica. Veronica M. Glab on LinkedIn. Ross. As ever, find me at rossgallagher07 on Twitter. Very good. And I will be lurking predominantly at the bar tonight, so you can catch me over there, which is, uh, which is good. Uh, uh, but uh, thank you so much to Fireblocks for the fantastic sponsorship for tonight. Thank you so much for everybody for listening. Thank you so much for everybody being in the room. Give everybody a round of applause and say hi. Yeah.